I'm sorry. What was that again? I'm a god. You're a god. I'm a god, not the god. I don't think. Because you survived a car wreck? You folks ready to order? I didn't just survive a wreck. Today's Glop Culture Podcast is brought to you by Harry's Shave. Harry's is so confident in the quality of their blades, they want you to try their shave set for free. You heard that right. Just cover shipping when you sign up. Go to harrys.com slash glop. And by Wink, if you like good wine but can't even spell sommelier, it's time to take the stress out of wine shopping and try Wink, the new way to get all the best wines perfectly matched to your palate. Try Wink, W-I-N-C, and get $20 off plus complimentary shipping right now. When you go to trywink.com, that's T-R-Y-W-I-N-C.com. And by HelloFresh, the meal delivery kit service that makes cooking fun, easy, and convenient. For $35 off your first week of deliveries, visit HelloFresh.com and enter GlopCulture35, all one word, when you subscribe. So, yes, this is GlopCulture. And by, I used to say, and by. And by. I got no one, I got no one and by. The only thing that I have and by is Glop mm-hmm. Culture. And you're brought And, oh, and by Ricochet. And by Ricochet. ricochet. You should, well, uh, you know, Bob Long, please give us the Ricochet spiel. Well, I was going to say, it's Anne by Ricochet, a fast-growing uh, internet um, site for people for in the center-right. Center right to right. Oops, little echo, little echo. Here, here. It's not from echo. me. I'm hearing an echo. Um, uh, I'm not hearing an echo. I'm hearing an echo. Uh, now it went away. Uh, magically, because like, this happens a lot on conference calls. Wait, let's first introduce Jonah, and then I want to go back, because Jonah's sitting okay, there. Okay, so Jonah... What's interesting is that I'm in New York and Rob uh, Long. I'm John Podhoritz. I'm in New York. Rob Long is somewhere in New York, where it is uh, snowing. And uh, Jonah Goldberg, where are you? Right now, I am in North Pole, Alaska. This is an actual town name. It is a redundant name. I gotta say, it is. Uh, shockingly, it 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 doesn't play on the Santa stuff as much as you'd think it would, although it certainly does. It has a nice Christmas festival and all that kind of thing. Um, I'm at the Hotel North Pole, which is actually owned by my wife's family. Uh, Come and check it out if you're ever traveling to North Pole for business or pleasure. And I am, uh, uh, in a sense, this podcast is brought to you by the Hotel North Pole because they let me use one of their conference rooms. And um, I am down the block from the, it's now a Safeway, but it is the grocery store that my wife grew up working in because um, it was a family-owned grocery store. And I'm, tragically or sadly, I am here because my wife's mom passed away recently and the funeral is the day after tomorrow. So we had to cancel uh, our long-scheduled, planned, looked-forward-to trip uh, to Spain, and instead we are in uh, out, just outside of Fairbanks, where my wife grew up. Where this morning, a typical morning in March, it was minus twenty-four degrees. Oh man! But that's Celsius, so it's warmer. So yeah, <laughs> no, 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 no. Sorry, Jonah. You know, uh, because we had this whole uh, controversy over the weekend with Representative Steve King of Iowa talking about how you can't import somebody's babies. You're there in Alaska at the grocery store that your wife's family uh, owned. Um, You want to spend just a minute, minute and a half, and maybe talk about how your wife is somebody's baby from 
hungry um, and kind of an extraordinary sure. story? So uh, my father-in-law is, uh, and I'll use some of my standard spiel on him because I had to explain him to a lot of people. My father-in-law is one of the most impressive people I've ever known. He's, uh, he literally, not figuratively, the way Joe Biden means literally, uh, swam the Danube to escape the communists. He was born in Slovakia, spent a bunch of time in a refugee camp in, first in Europe, and then came over to the United States with literally nothing, um, but had a scholarship to the University of Colorado where he met my lovely late uh, mother-in-law, Donna Gavora, who uh, he married. They, he transferred to the University of Chicago where he got a master's degree from Milton Friedman and has all these fantastic stories about going to the Friedman's house for tea and being friends with Friedman, although they had a big falling out over the final exam uh, where my father-in-law claimed that the last page was stuck to the penultimate page. And so he left one whole page blank and things were never the same between them. Anyway, uh, he then... <laughs> piles into a car with his pregnant wife and four kids and drives to uh, Fairbanks, Alaska, back in the days when uh, the road to Fairbanks was mostly still unpaved, got here for a teaching job to teach economics at the university, but the job was gone when he got here for some reason. So he ended up becoming a uh, milkman for a local grocery store, sweeping up at night and that kind of thing, ended up buying out the grocery store, buying out another grocery store, and at the height of his success, was was owned a whole bunch of uh, grocery stores in in Fairbanks in Alaska, and owned hardware stores and, and all sorts of other real estate, and was this entirely self-made man who ended up raising nine kids in a place. I, I should say Donna raised nine kids because I mean that's that that was her <laughs> work, and um, among other things with the church, and she was a real uh, sort of staple of the community up here. And, and, you know, but nine kids in a place where it was too cold and too dark to let your kids play outside for a big chunk of the year. Like my wife never went to school, basically, where she didn't leave in the dark and come home in the dark. And I remember Donna telling me these horrible stories about how when my wife was a baby and they only had one heat vent in their little apartment um, downtown. And so they would they would swaddle my wife, Jessica, and put her over the heat vent in the floor and that's where she would sleep so they could be sure she would stay warm all night. And it was during a cold snap. And a cold snap up here means something. It was over 40 straight days of 40 below or colder. And so there was Good a Lord. half inch of ice on the inside of the glass in their apartment because of all the moisture of your exhalation kind of would, would, would freeze on the glass. And, um, and today Donna would tell these stories about how she would wake up you know, in total darkness and turn on the radio, and the radio would say, sorry, folks, no end in sight to the cold spell. <laughs> and, and anyway, so she raised, you know, nine fantastic kids up here. Um, and uh, it's, it's funny because, like, they all think I'm kind of exotic for being from Manhattan. Uh, <laughs> but, like, everybody I know in New York and Washington is fascinated by, by Jess and her experience growing up here in Alaska. And... Um, it is so much, it is, it is really a different, like in the summer, it's just beautiful up here and it's beautiful almost round the clock because the sun basically doesn't set in the summer, but in the winter, it's, it's like the surface of another planet. It is just, the physics are different. Things are different. Rubber loses its elasticity. I mean, it's just, it's a different place when you get 
sustain temperatures as cold. And it's just amazing that humans can thrive here. Well, I mean, I think what's amazing is the story of your father-in-law and this, you know, account of somebody coming to America as a young man and making, you know, a, a dramatic success out of himself in a field he never intended to enter solely as a result of the need for, you know, ingenuity and a practical way of life. And, you know, as we continue on in this, you know, mad onrush to an idea that, you know, being an American is about root and soil and not about committing to the American idea, you know, it's important to hear stories like this because they are the truth about the United States, in my view. I mean, uh, you know, everybody swung the swung the Danube and started so, the chain of business. So I'll tell you one. I'll, I'll tell you one last story about my father. Forty forty days of night. Forty <laughs> days of night. Oh, oh man! What, what, I mean, one, like, like, it's like, what did he ever at some point think? Okay, you know, I'm done now. No more. <laughs> I go to Florida. This is stupid. my my great my great grandfather. My great grandfather came to Minnesota from Lithuania in 1860 under a program, a kind of 40 acres and a mule program. And he was sent north near International Falls, Minnesota, which is, as you may know, the coldest place in the continental United States. In October, that was where his stake was. And he lived the winter, basically, in International Falls, Minnesota. And when spring came... He turned right around and went back to Lithuania because <laughs> no human being could live like this. He lived basically in a dugout, like in My Antonia, that the novel by Willa Cather, which describes these Czech immigrants who ended up living essentially in a in a dugout in a hole in the ground in the winter because they didn't have enough money to build their house yet sure, or sure. And the means to do so. <clears throat> and then there's Paul Gavora, who goes out with four children in a car to. Fairbanks, Alaska, and becomes this wild. But, but sir, for like, what I, I'm teach, sort of more interested in the moments. Each classical liberal yeah. economics. That's the, that's, I, I, that's and then the and then living it and then living it yeah. instead. I, I'm just sort of more interested in those like the moments where you do all the things, you swim in the Danube, the communists. You get to the United States. It's really hard. You get to the University of Chicago, and then you got Milton Friedman, and then he kind of like screws you over a little bit on the final. Let's be honest. <laughs> and then you know, well, hell with that. I'm going to go drive to Fairbank. You drive to Fairbank. It's the dirt. You get to Fairbank. Oh, sorry. Yeah, yeah that job is gone. stuff we don't have anymore. Um, at what point do you just like just just want to beat somebody up? You just want to walk outside, just start screaming. <laughs> curses just uh, unleash a string of obscenities it's like really this it, I, I just think at that point i would just i would just get drunk and just tell everybody to go away and i pulled the covers up over my head i mean what 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 is the, what is why do some people have that ability well so, I, I, okay all right all right you know i'm gonna get okay, okay you know what i'll be a milkman okay you know what i'm, I'm a milkman i'll figure out i'm gonna buy this place okay you know what i'm gonna buy this you know buy that place i'm gonna buy this place buy that place and you know what at the same time i'm gonna raise a family do all the other stuff i gotta do uh, where does that come from just where yeah well, so, is there any way to buy it can i buy some of that well it's funny i mean he's sort of a standout from i mean i, I don't want to get into family gossip but he like he's the one guy who made it here from Slovakia, the rest of the family stayed behind and the differences are interesting. But like my father-in-law 
you know, he saw bad stuff from both sides, both from the communists and the Nazis, given where Slovakia was. And he has a very, very down to earth, despite uh-huh. his ability to do, you know, economic theory, very down to earth understanding of, of business and economics and life choices. So his advice to the kids, whenever they came up with a career ideas, his first question was, yeah, but can you eat it? And, <laughs> uh, and what uh, that was like, like economics at the end of the day, the most reliable yeah. forms of economics are centered around basic human needs, you know, food, shelter, clothing. And right. if you get too clever, you're putting yourself out on a limb. But I'll give you one. So this is one of my favorite stories about it. I was on a fishing trip in, uh, in Prince William Sound and talking to my oldest brother-in-law and the subject of uh, seasickness came up and my brother-in-law says, Oh yeah, you know, Paul doesn't get seasick. And I was like, well, what do you mean? And he said it like cryptically. And I was like, what are you talking about? And he says, well, you know the story, right? And I was like, no, no. And he tells me the story about how, so he came, Paul came to the United States. He booked passage on a, like a, some sort of steamership, not like the steamership you were on Rob. And, um, and they went into, and since he, he booked passage as a, as a, like a stevedore or a laborer or a sailor or something oh, sure. like that. So his job was. Yeah, to, I, I, didn't, I, I didn't do that part. And so they hit <laughs> really, really, really bad weather, like a crazy storm. Uh-huh. And. Well, I've been uh, there. And the, uh, so the captain ordered everybody secured below um, in the center of the ship or something. And my father-in-law's job to ride out this, ride out this long storm was to be lashed to the railing on the deck with a billy club. And his job was, because people panic when they get, when boats start tossing right. that, right. his job was to club anybody who burst through the doors trying to escape <laughs> over the head and <laughs> kick them in the chest back below. <laughs> Oh my, oh my god <laughs> and, and wow so, so like seasickness no nah, it's just it's yeah. just not really an issue yeah. so it's just a basic how what year was that this was probably i i don't 57 58 yeah i would say early, okay so maybe a little earlier earlier in the 50s so we're talking what to 60 years 60 years six zero the uh, a couple uh, one generation really when you get right down to it uh, not even a human lifespan we have gone from that being a job I club people to, you know, to keep them under uh, in the hold essentially club them to save their lives totally to save their lives we went there from sixty years we went from there to Middlebury College I can't hear Charles <laughs> Murray ow it hurts my feelings when he talks about the things he ow that's pretty amazing. A, a cultural journey. <laughs> well, it, by the way, it's a combination of that of the I can't listen, and wow. I'm wow. Gonna act, and I'm going to live in America and act like the Stalinists who drove Paul Gavora to swim the Danube to get away from them, right? Creating right. a creating yeah. a mob, right. a sort right. of a you know a Robespierrean Jacobin mob to assault somebody for the assault someone and the liberal professor who was presenting him with whom with whom he she disagreed assaulting them for daring to say something that was 
if they actually even knew what it was he was trying to say, because, of course, no one ever bothered to read anything that he ever wrote. Um, but assaulting Charles Murray and the, and the professor who invited him for the crime of thinking something that they thought should not be thought. Right. And that's, that right. is the nature of, uh, of this, this, you know, small, uh, well-thought-of liberal arts college, a place that people used to go to to learn Russian. Uh, right. One of the things right. that made Middlebury's reputation was in the aftermath of Sputnik, this was where you Gesundheit. went you needed to take a quick course to learn Russian because you were going to go into the CIA to fight the commie. <laughs> was you went to Middlebury for their famous uh, Russian language sure, course. Sure, they, they had a big language thing. And now it's uh, 50 years later and uh, 60 years past that. And uh, and Charles Murray is you know getting his car attacked by – by you know a vicious mob of Vermont monsters. Um, nobody, by the way, has yet been um, uh, disciplined for anything relating to the Charles Murray. Well, um, yeah, but I mean, they, they aren't going to be. I mean, there'll be a, a a committee, and the committee will write a paper. The paper will say things like, uh, "We must be mindful." A lot of questions with we must be mindful and to be sure, a lot of those sentences. And then eventually it'll just all blow away and there'll be some new outrage that we'll, we'll, we'll turn our attention to. I mean, it's remarkable to think of how many, how fast the cycles are now. I mean, um, we are uh, we are no longer exercised, or at least the White House no longer exercised over the three million illegal votes, which seemed to me to be a gigantic scandal. But we move on. You know, we, we're, we're going to have to talk about something else. And it's the same way on the left, too, it's, or, or even the culture in general. The one thing that I think will remain, uh, and I actually thought it would disappear by now, but I was reading the Wall Street Journal today, is the, is the guy in Korea who was giving this uh, interview about the Korean president's um, in, impeachment. impeachment. Right. And well, you know, Rob, it, we should return to Professor Kelly – uh, in a moment. In a moment. Because I think it's important that I tell what our listeners. What should we do in between now and then? We need to tell our <laughs> listeners about Harry Shave. That's true. Which I don't think uh, you know, Paul Gore didn't have any Harry Shave. This morning, I this morning took a Harry Shave with a Harry's razor and a Harry's blade. And, uh, it's a fine product. I am, I am uh, delightfully clean shaven in those Did parts. You, what face color, that was, covered by what color is the handle? The handle is uh, silver and black. Okay, because I have one that has this beautiful coral red handle, and it's a joy. See, there you go. So, you know. I'm interrupting your spot. Go ahead. No, I'm just going to tell you that for decades, one big razor company that shall not be named has relentlessly increased prices and reaped immense profits at the expense of their customers, which is why Jeff and Andy, two ordinary guys fed up with getting ripped off, started Harry's to fix shaving. They knew there was only one way to ensure quality. So they bought their own factory, and by taking less profit and selling directly to you over the internet, Harry's offers their blades at half the price, just 2 bucks a blade, compared to the $4 or more you'll pay at the drugstore. What do you get? They come with everything you need for a close, comfortable shave, weighted ergonomic handle, five precision engineered blades with a lubricating strip and trimmer blade, rich lathering shave gel, travel blade cover. Harry's is so confident in the quality of their blades, they want you to try their shave set for free. You heard that right. Just cover shipping when you sign up. Plus, as a special offer to fans of the show, go to harrys.com slash glop right now, and when you order, you'll get a post-shave bomb also free. That's harrys.com slash glop. Our thanks to Harry's for sponsoring the glop podcast. So, Rob, you were talking about Professor Kelly uh, at yes. the University of Busan. I, uh, I believe 
Yes. Yeah, and I, and I have been to Busan. Ironically, I was st- I was there for one day uh, on my giant uh, container ship voyage. It's a huge, huge shipping port, one of the largest in Asia. It's just gi- giant. It's hard to imagine something. It's hard to imagine a, a bigger one until you get to uh, uh, Shanghai. Uh, That's what she said. Just yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, and, and and what I love about this is that, is that it, it, it kind of folds right into what I was saying in our last glop, and I was roundly uh, dismissed by the the small minds uh, around this uh, Skype call uh, for the, the 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 fact that people love to see the wires now. The wires are the most important thing. This backstage stuff, the stuff when it goes hay, haywire and snafus, they like it. It means something real has happened. So this guy is doing an interview with BBC talking about the, the impeachment of the of South Korean um, president. And he thinks he's lo- he, he's been doing them all day. And he has a little study in his room, in his apartment in Busan. And he usually locks the door when he does one of these so that his two little children can't wander in. But this time he just forgets to lock the door. But meanwhile, his wife is looking at – is kind of minding the kids. At the same time, she's recording with her iPhone the interview from the TV. So it's a weird 21st century experience where he's on Skype with London, with BBC. His wife is watching it live in the other room, and she's recording it with her iPhone for posterity. And at some point, unbeknownst to his wife, the children wander in, and they start dancing around behind him. And she is so focused on recording it, she doesn't notice that until she sees them on the television. Okay, I want to talk. They're in the in, in the other room, and then it kind of goes haywire. But there's one other one wonderful twist to yeah. it, which I think you're going to get to. So I'll let you get to it. No, I, I I'm not. You you do the twist, and then I'll. Well, the wonderful twist that I loved about it was that everybody said because suddenly on screen an Asian woman comes running out and grabbing okay. the kids, and everybody said, oh, a lot of people said on Twitter, oh, that must be the nanny. Right. Of course, it was his <laughs> wife, and right. so on Twitter it created this strange. Uh, I don't know what it called scrum of accusations and counter accusations of you're a racist. You're not a racist. I am not a racist. No, you're this really what Twitter was built for, which is sort of like this incredible tangle of rage (laughs) and accusations that are all incoherent. It was a perfect moment. And then it all wraps up with his family. I interviewed the wall street journal today and they seem like incredibly charming and lovely people. Right. I want to talk about why, what we saw in that 45 seconds was Maybe the greatest single comedy skit ever <laughs> done, and it was a it was a per- well. it's like you know. I'll, let me explain why. It was a perfect piece of comedy. If you spent ten years trying to time it, you could never get it right. So there he is talking in the foreground, very seriously and ponderously, with this map behind him, and then in the background, out of focus, comes in this bopping little girl with glasses on, and she dances over close to him, and then as she's coming over, she knocks some books over, and he realizes that something has gone on. Without turning, without changing his expression, he puts his arm out to block her way, just to block her way. And then, as he's doing that, again in the background comes this baby in a walker. The baby rolls in in the walker, following her sister, um, sort of wanders in and then he sort of pushes the 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 three-year-old a little bit out of the way at which point then this his wife emerges low she's low to the ground she's trying to avoid the camera 
she comes in low, grabs the three-year-old by the arm, pulls her out. The three-year-old starts to protest. She pulls her out, and as she's pulling her out, she rolls the baby out. And then you hear some crying in the hallway, and then still behind him, the camera never moving, her arm reaches out without the rest of her body, the mother's arm, grabs the doorknob and pulls the door shut. 45 seconds. And as this is going on in the last 15 seconds, Professor Kelly is saying, I'm really very sorry about all this. (laughs) But he's (laughs) laughing too. I'm so sorry. And then he's laughing and it is spectacular. And so are the the anchor people in back in London. And it was, you know, if the Marx Brothers... It was better than the stateroom scene in the Marx Brothers. It was like Whoa, one wait, wait, topping. No. no, but it was like a Whoa, topping no. of a Slow topping down. of a topping. Yeah, that's and true. I mean, but it really was because it was they, all because real. It was all real. That's what makes it. But an actual comedy skit would have had eight kids. Right. Two, <laughs> two is not. All humor comes in threes, and then the wife, and she would have hit her head, and he wouldn't have been cool about it. It would have been much more important than a, like a one just one little Skype BBC hit. It would have been the job interview. Uh, you know, with Mr. Intimidation Man. And then we all, well, boss Intimidation Man, I want to, uh, this is outrageous. And then it would all end with like, you know, you've got grit, you're hired. Um, that's how that, <laughs> that scene would have ended. But it, you, know, you had to have a lot more stuff going on. What I loved about it was a real family. It was a real family. Yeah, it, it kind of reminds me, it, it, I always try to like talk about this and like to explain how moments matter in politics. and But like, there's one of my favorite scenes, most underrated scene in in Groundhog Day is the scene where so on one of the endless nights, Bill Murray has this absolutely perfect, spontaneous moment with Andy McDowell where he's building a snowman and or do it. Yeah, do building a snowman. And uh, and then some kids throw snowballs and he defends right. her honor, pretends to be a knight. And it's just this great romantic moment. And he then spends presumably half an eternity trying to recreate this organic yeah. moment and it's never perfect. can. Right. And, yeah. I, and that's, that's such a big part of life is that you cannot sort of recreate or create authentic moments that way, because the second anybody is in on it, audience or participant, it's just not the same, you know, especially now that everything seems to be sort of curated and packaged and right. uh, edited and airbrushed. So people right. are, you know, people, save up their Instagrams to create kind of the image of like, well, here's what I'm doing on vacation. They, mm-hmm. they, they take already shots where they crop out the stuff that's not perfect. They kind of live through that. Everybody's, pre- everybody's presenting their best face. Uh, and so when something crazy happens where this guy is just, just, uh, just out of luck because his kids are running around, it, it seems refreshingly real. He seems like he's more real than yeah. anyone else. But in fact, that happens to everybody all the time. You know, you, you spill the coffee, you uh, you drop your keys, you do stuff. There's yeah. tiny little mistakes, tiny mistakes throughout our day that um, we I don't think we maybe we don't appreciate as much. But you know, uh, 17 years ago, I wrote an essay called "Survivor and the End of Television," which was about the the end of the first season of Survivor. Um, if you remember, which was really the first breakout reality show was on network and the last episode of survivor featured this out of nowhere this astonishing speech that the runner-up made about the winner richard hatch who eventually went to jail for tax evasion and stuff like that and the whole point was hatch had been a snake right 
he had like made deals with people and then gone back on them in order to win. And the runner up out of nowhere makes this speech. Her name was Susan Hawk, and she makes this oh, speech sure. about about how he's a snake and what the nature of a snake is, and how a snake always gets his comeuppance because even though he gets his way initially, eventually it all catches up with him. And it came out of her spontaneously, standing around this fire, and you'd never quite seen anything like it. And it was like this moment of kind of bizarre authenticity on television, the incredible um, articulateness of this, you know, ordinary person in front of 40 million people on this final show. And I think we underestimate the degree to which that trope, that idea of what is authentic and what is real had played a role in the eventual presidency of Donald Trump, right? So Trump makes himself an international celebrity, an American icon through a reality show called The Apprentice in which he plays a kind of businessman he is not, right? He is He's like the innovative entrepreneurial guy, and he tries. He's trying to find someone to work with him, but he sets them all these tasks to start stores and create products and do none of which is what he does. Right? What he does is license his name and build buildings. That's all he does, and none of what they do features into this. But the whole idea is this is what it's really like. This is what it's really like to be a businessman. You get all these people, and then you can say you're fired every week to one of them until you have the one that you want. And and even though it wasn't authentic and it, it, totally inauthentic, nonetheless, this idea was fixed that he was a real – he was real in a way that maybe other politicians who do politics for a living aren't yeah. real people. And he managed to convey that authenticity even though he lied every day. He went back on his promises. He did everything you're not supposed to do because he had this pre-sold – A lot of the real is the word. Reality. It's canned and not canned. It's, yeah, it's yeah. it's it's pre- prepared and not prepared, and and there's something about being unprepared. I mean, it's, I think it's a bad idea in a president, um, but I think it's one of those things that it's kind of uh, when it breaks through, when they get the Oscars wrong, when something like this happens, or the guy runs in, it's sort of like wow. It means that it's joyful. On the other hand, there are people who believe that when these things happen, it is proof that we're living in a computer simulation. So that's for Joe right. to decide. But, you know, there's a, there's a weird irony to all of this, which I hadn't really thought of before, which is that um, I meet more and more politicians, prominent Republican types who want to persuade me that that Trump is on the up and up and worth supporting and all that kind of stuff. And <clears throat> you also hear people who have personal relationships with Trump, you know, Scarborough and that crowd, they always insist that the Trump you see on TV isn't the Trump you meet off camera, that the Trump off camera is not so bombastic. He's charming. He's a good listener. Um, all this kind of stuff. And that's, that may be true. It may not be true. That's not my point. What's funny is that knowing quite a few real world, normal conventional politicians, like the, t- the politician you see on TV is like, I don't know, Mitch McConnell or Paul Ryan, <laughs> you know, or those kinds of guys. That's pretty much what they're like in real life. Yeah. And what's funny is that is that Trump has been sold to us that what you see is what you get. He's authentic. He's real and all that kind of stuff. But his defenders, at least in the business of politics, want to retreat to this argument. Oh, no, no, that's not really him. Yeah, but what's funny, funny 
Yeah, but what's funny is when usually when that argument is made, it was made all the time about Al Gore and a lot about Hillary Clinton. It was the stiff, boring person you see in front of you. When the cameras aren't on, they're really lively and interesting right. and funny. But you know, when when they have to be in public, it's all studied and drained of life. Um, and you know, so what you really need to know is the person you really like to like is in there, but you're not allowed to see them because it's just too dangerous. Whereas the Trump line is exactly the opposite. Like this kind of crazy, you know, lively, you know, uh, unprecedented person is really just a conventional, ordinary businessman guy, you know? You know, that you can deal with and talk to and, you know, he's rational and you can have a conversation and that sort of thing. I'm not sure is- it's true, but... There is one thing that unites both, and this is and, and this is my complaint about which I've written a bunch of times about Hillary and stuff. Is all these people who always insist if you just got to meet the real Hillary, you would know how awesome she is. And this always seemed to me sort of like this wonderfully brilliant sort of pas de deux of both sucking up and um, and reassuring the public, right? Because on the one hand, it was a way of of telegraphing, you would hear like, you know, I don't know, Hillary Rosen. I don't mean to pick on her, but it's just she was one of the people I remember making that argument all the time about how in real life Hillary is just this most wonderful, charming, warm personality. And that's a way to tell the whole world that, first of all, you have access to Hillary Clinton, that, you know, that you're you're part of the inner circle. Plus, it's a way to sort of bra- it's sort of suck up to Hillary Clinton by telegraphing to the world that you actually think she's incredibly awesome even more awesome than the public realizes. And it's this, it's this kind of Washington sycophancy that is sort of brilliant in its tactical nature. And I think there's some of that with the Trump stuff too, certainly in public. It's a way of saying, unlike you people, I actually know the most powerful person in the world. Right. And, and I think he's fantastic, yeah. particularly when I get to meet him <laughs> one-on-one over a nice meal. You know, I mean, yeah. that's, yeah. that's a brilliant move. Yeah, yeah, it's true. But it's also, also, I mean, it's also part of the Washington D.C. is at least two thirds full of people whose job it is to help you if you're a candidate or a person or a politician, help you not be normal, right? That's right. sort of the, the 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 job of of every PR consultant and campaign person and strategist and all sorts of is this: how can I get you to not appear normal? Because they're, everybody, everybody's terrified of normal. Everybody's terrified that your children are going to come in when you're doing a BBC interview. Or everybody's terrified you're going to open up the envelope and it's going to be the wrong name. But the truth is that these things happen. And instead of being terrible, they're kind of enlivening. They're kind of they're they're bracing. They're sort of exciting. Yeah. And there is something about Trump. I mean, not to bring everything to Trump, but culturally, I think this is really this is really true. There's something about him that people like, even people who don't like him, and what they like is. He's exciting. He's bracing. And he's different. Right. And he's unscripted. Right. And that now, seems so, yeah. so. No. So nobody complains later when 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 it turns out actually no, Obama Barack Obama didn't bug he didn't didn't wiretap his yeah. phones and no three million people didn't uh, were, didn't vote illegally. They're like, yeah, well, he was unscripted. He was just improvising. That's fine. But you know the other the, the other aspect of this is it, it, there's a form of special pleading for rich or famous or powerful people all the time, like. You know, if you know, uh, you know, I happen to know some billionaires, Jonah, and I know some billionaires in common. And what is it that people often say? But they always say, like, he's actually a good guy. 
He's like a normal guy. He's like a regular guy. You know, right. he he eats, he drinks, you know, he walks, he can have a conversation. You know, he's not like Uncle Scrooge McDuck, you know, going and taking a mm. bath, you know, going d- diving and swimming in his money. No, he's but he's like not a, normal. He's like he's an actual normal. person. But yeah, but your impulse is to normalize him. You see what I'm saying? Like if people say, what is so-and-so really like? Oh, you know, he's a good guy. He's an okay, you know, whereas it's not like that's not something you would say about your friend, you know, who's like, what? Actually, he's a good guy. Totally normal. He's a a good guy. Yeah. You know, like what what a special pleading that says this person who doesn't have to be a good guy is still a good guy. And he (laughs) deserves special credit for being a good guy. For being normal. It's something I wrote a bunch about in my last book, but um, the phrase power corrupts um, and absolute power corrupts absolutely. Lord Acton believed that about politicians and all that kind of stuff for the most part. He was worried about concentrated power. But that's not actually the genesis of the phrase. The genesis of the phrase comes from a, a series of letters that Acton was having with a guy named, I think his name was Crichton, and who was writing a biography of Pope uh, or of Popes and a history of Popes. And Acton was making the point that historians tend to forgive the sins of very powerful people on the grounds that that's what really powerful people have to do. And so behaviors and attitudes that you would never condone in your children or your neighbor or a business partner, you find forgivable in powerful people. And so, you know, Stalin kills, you know, 15 million people and or whatever the number is. And his sycophants say, well, that was necessary to move the wheel of history forward. That was necessary you know, to do these great things. But if Stalin had been an accountant and killed 15 people, <laughs> no one would forgive him for anything. That's and, right. and that's the same thing about almost every powerful person. And it's amazing when you look at it, and this is a point I was trying to make during the rise of Trump, but it's, it's true as a general proposition, is that we tend to forgive people, both in their personal lives, you know, their affairs, their this, their that, all sorts of things that we would never condone or excuse in people closer to home. Just because they're powerful. Yep. Well, and that that's a kind of natural higher – that's a human instinct that, that you know, exists in every political system, in every time, in every age is the belief – is the, you know, is the capacity for hero worship. And we see it now. You know, all we know of the last, you know, 100 years is that there is a horrible danger in hero worshiping political figures, right? even the ones who deserve it, like Churchill or something like that. There's just a horrible danger in, in, in moving toward hero worship who because they're human beings and human beings right. are flawed and you are not – you are supposed to worship God. You are not supposed to worship people and people will either – either people will disappoint you and thus crush you and turn you into a cynic or – you will find yourself making moral compromises in order not to face the fact that your worship is, you know, is um, is idolatrous. Let's say there's an old story, and I'm going to get it all wrong, but I'm going to tell it anyway. An old story about um, maybe it was Dorothy Parker and some young writer, or she may have been the young writer. Uh, and you're at a, at a party in New York, and someone said, "Well, you know." Helen Keller is upstairs, and she was 
dumbfounded because Helen Keller was still alive then and was a huge, huge hero to her and incredible inspiration. And she just wanted to meet Helen Keller. So she said, I, I'm going to move up there. I want to meet her. And then whoever was she was talking to said, don't do that. Don't do that. And she says, no, no, I have to meet her. She's an extraordinary figure to me. And she goes and she she's goes. She spends about an hour with Helen Keller. She comes back down and she's to, to completely downcast. And her friend says, huh, yeah, you met her, right? Yeah. Well, it turns <laughs> out Helen Keller was one of the worst people ever. <laughs> Just horrible, incredibly mean and bitter and rude and dismissive and haughty, all sorts of terrible things. And that you, you, find, you meet Helen Keller, you think, well, she's got to be inspirational and fantastic. This turns out she's just a witch. And it was just a, it was a disastrous, disastrous, so, soul-killing, image-crushing moment for this young writer to meet her hero and to discover her hero was just this jerk. So you're saying that she then that you're saying that she then was justified in moving around the furniture. <laughs> Do you remember those? Do you remember Storing the her roller skates jokes? upstairs. Sorry, what was that? Storing <laughs> no. her roller skates upstairs. Sure, exactly right. Why did she burn half? Her, how did she burn the left half of her face? She tried. A- answering the iron. When you were nine years old, there was nothing better. But, you know, as a as a 39 year old or a 49 year old or a 29 year old, there is nothing to beat wink. Because if you true. like good wine, but you can't even spell sommelier, it's time to take the stress out of wine or shopping. Even if you can spell it, I gotta interrupt. Even if you can, I think that's even if you bad. Can't spell I sommelier. Can sommelier and I, I love wine. Spell sommelier and I think also, terrific. okay. There you go. Well, so, I'm not going to ask you to spell sommelier, but I am going to ask you to spell wink. M-M-E-L-I-E-R. W-I-N-C. 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 It's the new way to get all the best yeah. wines perfectly matched to your palate. Wink works directly with winemakers and growers from all over the world to create delicious wine and deliver it right to your door. 100% satisfaction guarantee means if you don't like a bottle they send you, they'll replace it with a bottle you'll love, no questions asked. You don't just get sent random bottles. Wink is a personalized wine membership that recommends wine specifically for you based on the results of your palate profile quiz. You can also rate all of the wine you receive from Wink so they learn about your tastes with every order and constantly personalize the wine they send. Sign up for Wink right now and gain immediate insider access to the best fine wine from all over the world. Find out for yourself why the hosts of Glop Culture and thousands of other satisfied wine lovers are raving about Wink. The best part, Wink is offering Glop listeners 20 bucks off right now. When you go to trywink.com slash glop, they'll even cover the shipping. Think about that. Fine wine personalized to your palate, delivered right to your door. Try Wink and get $20 off plus complimentary shipping right now when you go to trywink, T-R-Y-W-I-N-C dot com slash glop. Thanks to Wink for sponsoring the Glop podcast. Rod, Rod wait, wait, you, uh, wait, why was Helen Keller's leg wet? Uh, why was Helen Keller's leg wet? Why? Her dog was blind too. <laughs> What's Helen Keller's favorite color? Uh, what? Corduroy. <laughs> I forgot. I knew that one. Why? Why didn't Helen Keller scream when she fell off the cliff? Why? She was wearing mittens. <laughs> okay. Uh, right. Please send all. 
Please send all complaints and strong letters to Rob Long. Yeah, exactly. You can send them to me. Rob, it's, but remember you know that? What? Why, those you know have what? gone the miracle away. Worker, those, what, miracle worker has been on TV for like 30 years. Yeah. So but those went away. Helicologists went away. Polish jokes. Remember Polish jokes? They went away too. They did. I, I mean, you can, you can, then they became dumb blonde jokes, and then that became uh-huh. misogynistic. So um, you can't have, uh, can't have those. Um, like all, all jokes that, you know, that basically involve the belittling of another person. But that's all jokes. And then, I know that is all jokes. It's true. Only Jewish jokes survive because, you know, Jews, Jews tell them on themselves. That's, that's the key to Jewish jokes. And then a lot of people go, what? They don't get it. I'm trying to think uh, if I, if I uh, can think of one. Okay, I, well. The, and then, of course, there's my favorite. Somebody? Sorry? There's, You're trying to think of a joke that doesn't belittle somebody? I'm trying to think of joke, a, a good Jewish joke. I, I, I oh, can I tell you just my favorite, my favorite joke? My favorite joke is this. A uh, masochist and a, and a sadist are in a room. And the masochist <laughs> says, beat me. And the sadist says, later. <laughs> That's my favorite joke. That's now, a Rob, joke. Rob you, uh, you were telling us that you have just written a column uh, for The National uh, about um, the next uh, Justin Bieber that you think the country uh, needs to know about. Can you tell well, us? Well, I, I don't think the country needs to know about it. I, I, I was struck by something. I was struck by, by, by two events happened last, last weekend. Uh, the King Kong movie opened. Kong, the Skull. new... The Skull Island. Skull Island. Like that. I, I have some comments about this when you get a chance. Yeah. Rob, right, Rob's well, we fantastic. So it, uh, Jonah has fantastic stuff on Kong. We've okay. got to go there. It, it made uh, about $142 million worldwide, which seems like that should be enough, but it really isn't. That when you drill down into it, you discover that's actually not a terrific opening worldwide for, Hong, for Kong because the, the, it's got to make it somewhere north of $500 million to break even. And so what all these kind of, what Warner Brothers is trying to do is to create their own universe, you know, like everything, the Marvel universe, and the DC universe and the universe of movies so that they can create a universe of what they call it, them and they and legendary, which is they're allied with here can create a universe of monsters. So it's not just King, King Kong, but it's also Godzilla and they're already working on Godzilla and King Kong versus Godzilla. So these are, gigantic enterprises, $300 million have been thrown into this movie. And in order to get your money back and, and pay for everything you got to pay for, the opportunity costs and all sorts of things, you need to make about a half a billion dollars. And they're not probably not going to make it, which means they have these two these two choices to make. One is you pull out, you say, uh, this is we made a mistake, or you just triple, quadruple down, and you just make the – you just do bigger, bigger movies with more promotion. And that's because the people who make these decisions, these worldwide media behemoth decisions, are all, all live in the 310 area code pretty much. I mean, they all live within five miles from each other, and they sort of miss all these things kind of bubbling up to the surface. So that's one data point. The second data point I read uh, the other day was that Justin Bieber, his net worth is somewhere north of $200 million, right? Uh, so if uh, – if um, you know Kong Skull Island to make money, that's about two and a half Justin Bieber's in a way, and 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 the, the trick what everybody wants to find is okay when is the next 
when is the where who, who is the next Justin Bieber, right? Who is the next giant producer? And there's a guy on YouTube from Kazakhstan, and he is hugely successful in Central and East Asia. He's like winning all these American Idol style shows in China. His name is Dimash Kudaibergov, and he's kind of like the slightly Asian looking um, Justin Bieber, but he's not blonde. And I bet you this kid. Yeah. 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 I bet you this kid, <laughs> if he works it right, will be the next Justin Bieber. He'll have come just like Justin Bieber, essentially from YouTube. He'll have this, this huge net worth if he wants, just like Justin Bieber. Um, and and it'll and he'll be worth more, really more than one installment of a big monster picture that's probably not going to make its money back. Uh, and I'm not really sure what the conclusion there is, except um, it just shows you that this sort of disaggregated media business that we live in. Um, the, the 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 casualties about to really feel it are all living kind of within two or three miles from my house. <laughs> okay, so, now Jonah, yeah, Jonah, so you have a fantastic disquisition on the ooh. on the category error that is King Kong yeah, and so Skull first, Island. Can so, you can you ventilate a little bit? I know you're yeah, in a hurry. So so first of all, if we had see, this is how you can tell that every single Glop podcast is really one of these organic, fantastic real events, because if we had planned this out, we would have started <laughs> by saying, by pointing out that Justin Bieber is doomed to go south um, because the second anyone gets a pet monkey, that is the biggest red flag. <laughs> and um, the pet monkey then would have led naturally into Skull, King Kong Skull Island. Um, so here's my problem. This has always been, I don't like King Kong movies because I actually don't want to see a gorilla get hurt. I like apes, you know, and I think it's kind of funny. I think that's the basic problem is that 100 years ago or 75 years ago, uh, gorillas were fearsome, terrible beasts that people didn't mind seeing shot full of holes. And now they're sort of just second right. only to pandas and tigers as things you don't want to see hurt. Um, I mean, no one would say, let's right. make a movie. Let's make a movie about an enormous, adorable golden retriever puppy that knocks down buildings and squishes people because you don't want to see, <laughs> you don't want to see the army win. Right. I mean, it's just to be terrifying anyway. Right. So, but this is my, my real problem with King Kong movies. And I wrote about this at great length in the last Goldberg file a while ago. Um, is that in almost all of these movies, all the versions of it, guys go to this Island for one reason or another, they get there, either they don't find oil, they don't find what they were looking for, but they do find, um, a bunch of Tyrannosaurus rexes, some brontosauruses, some pterodactyls, um, this enormous, you know, two city block long snake, um, all of these supposedly extinct dinosaurs, and a big gorilla. <laughs> and, 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 and what did they capture? And so, what did they capture and bring back the show? Their mere response is let's kill all the dinosaurs, which, like, Every little kid in the world would pay through the teeth to see a living dinosaur, but let's capture the big gorilla and bring it home. And bring and it to Broadway. I, That's the other Bring it to Broadway. Part. Yeah. And so, like, like, if they bring it up to, to have a show on a stage with the gorilla. <laughs> but, a, but a Broadway show. Yeah. And so, Broadway like, show. what is that Broadway show? <laughs> Cirque du Soleil. The second act of the Broadway show has to be the gorilla escaping and killing people. But but, but the thing is, is like, like, can you imagine the memo you sent home to the corporate office 
where you say, uh, so didn't find X, didn't find oil, whatever they were looking for. But we did find an entire population of living dinosaurs. But don't worry. We have instructed our men to kill them all on sight. <laughs> but we have found a very large monkey. And we are going to an extreme cost of life and limb and who knows what else, blood and treasure, sacrifice everything to bring home the big monkey. Now, in, pre- in fairness, it is a really big monkey. I mean, I don't, don't, don't get me wrong. Please, please rent out the Richard Rogers Theater for our show. Called Going but you Ape. couldn't fit the dinosaur in the Broadway theater. No, you know, you Going couldn't Ape. fit. We need a sec- need, need you second. You can bring a Brontosaurus opener. back. They don't eat anybody. Exactly. What would that, what would that, Rex that, what would that musical people? be for a just for one second? What would that musical yeah. be? That musical would be kind of. I mean, it would be like a like, like the Elephant Man. It'd be like cats. It'd be no. It'd be like My Fair Lady meets the Elephant Man. <laughs> Actually, the Elephant Man is a lot like My Fair Lady. It is but, true. Uh, like. It, it, you, you you bring the ape back, and then you have to civilize the ape, and then the, I guess the second. Well, that's there's also a young Frankenstein yeah. thing you could do. Yeah, be a big that's ascot right. number, you know, that's where right. he'd yeah. be in a, you know, that kind of thing, yeah. and then eventually he'd have that that great second, whatever that big second that, act course, rousing yeah. well, ballad of like. The problem um, is if they just I'm not cast, so hairy or you know something. Yeah, like if they <laughs> just put Fay Ray into the show. Yeah, sure. then he wouldn't have to climb the Empire State Building to have to have his you know little romantic if, moment with Faye if Ray. Only, if only you could see him like I see him, you know, something <laughs> like that. That's right. But, now, uh, one thing that we need to see, and we, we need other people to see, like we see it, is HelloFresh. HelloFresh wants to change the way people eat forever. They believe everyone deserves honest, natural, delicious, healthy food. Whether you're a busy professional couple, a large family running at a breakneck pace, or someone who simply wants to start cooking more. HelloFresh makes it easier, tastier, and healthier than ever to enjoy the experience of cooking new recipes and eating together at home. My colleague, Nora Rothman, has now made three meals from HelloFresh. He's like raving about it every day. It's the meal delivery kit service that makes cooking easy, fun, and convenient. Every week creates new delicious recipes with step-by-step instructions designed to take around 30 minutes for everyone, from novices to seasoned home cooks short on time. HelloFresh sources the freshest ingredients, measured to the exact quantities needed so there's no food waste. They employ a full-time registered dietitian on staff who reviews each recipe to ensure it is nutritionally balanced. HelloFresh currently offers customers a classic box or a veggie box and will soon be launching a family box. Customers can order three or four or five different meals per week designed for either two or four people, all delivered to your doorstep in a special insulated box. And here's a special offer to listeners of the Glob Podcast – for $35 off your first week of deliveries, visit HelloFresh.com and enter GlopCulture35, all one word, when you subscribe. That's GlopCulture35. Our thanks to HelloFresh for sponsoring the Glop podcast. So, uh, Jonah, when your unhappy and sad uh, duty of um, of saying goodbye to your mother-in-law is is done, do you are you anywhere that people can come up and <laughs> express their condolences? Wow. Uh, the dark intro. Um, yeah. When this gig uh, is over, Joni, what's your next gig? Um, easy, easy. Uh, I have no um, uh, nothing in mind. I can't think of. Oh, I will be in Florida on the twenty eighth of March to speak to the annual dinner of the James Madison Institute. But beyond that, I can't think of anything off the top of my head. Uh, but uh, uh, that's it. Uh, Rob, uh, 
Of course, yeah, Kevin can wait. Mondays, CBS, 8 p.m.? Sure. Uh, yeah, the, uh, we, we're, I think we're, at some point they're going to decide to put on actually new shows. Oh. Uh, right now we've been running a lot of reruns. It's been driving me crazy. Uh, how many, how many, how many new shows do you have until you wrap the season? Uh, really one in, well, two technically, although, um, we're shooting a big two-parter, kind of a season closer, which, uh, which I'm, I'm not at liberty to discuss yet, but it, when it, when, if we get, get it all arranged, it'll be kind of cool. Okay. And I, uh, I'm nowhere. Guest star. Oh, a special I thought we were going to keep my appearance secret. Very exciting. <laughs> That's what I said, special guest star. I didn't. Uh... It's very exciting. Yeah. A special guest star to banter with Chael. Or, or yeah, or, or the star. Uh, <laughs> or the star, Kevin James. Often you. I'm a big. I'm a big fan of. I'm a big fan of Chael. He's good. He's good. Yeah. He's a great character, and and of course a fan of Kevin James. It's who can't? Lo- who doesn't love Kevin James? Sure. I'm asking. Everybody loves Kevin James. I just I just saw about half an hour of Hitch the other night, and uh, man, is, funny. man, is he good in that? He he's is good. He's good. Uh, I don't have a sitcom. I don't have. Uh, I of course have the commentary podcast, which you can listen to on Ricochet or go to commentary.com or subscribe on iTunes. That's twice a week. Uh, fantastic new issue of Commentary coming out in the next couple of days with an amazing lead article about. Uh, about the way in which uh, feminism has endangered health outcomes as a result of uh, the effort to suppress scientific studies that focus on women, uh, largely as a result of feminist gender theory. Uh, kind of amazing. And, uh, and that's, uh, that's it. And uh, I'm sure. uh, going out to Palo Alto next week where our producer – Scott Immergut and I uh, are going to dine at the French Laundry, I believe. Wow. In Yountville, California. Or Yountville. Is this how I Yountville? I don't know how it's pronounced. Yountville. Yeah, well, you know, you, you would know that because sure. you're, you're a foodie. You're like a foodie guy, and you know more about food than I've ever, you know, known about anything, I think. Um, Rob, can yeah. you quickly tell people about the Coke Challenge? The about the, su- the Southern Foodways Conference, Mexi- Mexican cane oh, sugar yes. right. well, you know, versus we, uh, regular we coke. Did. We had a room full of about 200 people, 250 people, maybe 300 people. We gave everybody a sip, a little, a little blind taste test. Coca-Cola made with corn syrup and Coca-Cola made with pure cane sugar. And um, most people could not tell the difference. And this is a room full of people who would have told you incontrovertibly, without any hesitation, that they could tell the difference. They could not tell the difference. That does not mean that there is not a difference. That just means that uh, it's hard. Once you taste something sweet and then another kind of sweet, it's hard to know what kind of sweet you had. Um, well, well I, I, as you know, I am a great advocate of the, of, of the belief that there um, is a recognizable taste difference. But, you know, that's because I'm a squish on immigration, Rob, and Maybe. I like the cane sugar Coke because, as, as you know, it is also called Mexican Coke. That is, is the However, that familiar is, name that is, is that we, we import yet, it from Mexico, so we call it, it will not Mexico. last long because Mexico itself is, gonna, is, is, is transitioning to corn syrup. What? Yeah, so. This is terrible. Really, the Coke, speaking, I can't believe I'm telling you this. The Coke you want is the kosher Coke, which they make in the Atlanta I area. know. I, I'm aware of that. And yeah. when you can't get kosher Coke, Coke 
must be made kosher during Passover uh, by the by uh, using cane sugar as opposed to corn syrup because you can't eat corn on Passover if you are keeping rigorously kosher Passover. So uh, in March and April at supermarkets in major cities, you will see Coke that is just sort of like in a classic red in the bottles, in the two-liter bottles, in a sort of a classic red right. label with very little else on it. And that is actually kosher Coke, and I swear to you it tastes better, even though Rob has right. the evidence right. of 400 people yeah. All right. to see so, you know, people, people like what they fake like. News. It's fake news. And uh, like. I'm going with fake news. Uh, before so, I, I know you want to ring off, John, I just want to leave you with one question. How did Helen Keller burn her fingers? Uh, she tried to read the waffle iron. Oh, there you go. You know that one. That's true. There we go. Why did Helen Keller's dog commit suicide? I, I don't know. Why did Helen Keller's dog commit suicide? Well, you would too if your name was. <laughs> <laughs> All right, that's it. Okay. That's it. No Thanks very much, everybody. We'll see you back. Next in time, fellas. Bye. I marched from Point Barrow through a blizzard of snow. Been out prospecting for two years or so. Pulled into Fairbanks, the city was a boom. So I took a little stroll to the Red Dog Saloon. As I walked in the door, the music was clear. The prettiest voice I had heard in two years. The song she was singing made a man's blood run cold. When it's springtime in Alaska, it's 40 below. Red-headed Lil Who was singing so sweet I reached down And took the snow packs Off my feet I reached for the gal Who was singing The tune We did the Eskimo pop All around the ceiling With a caribou crawl And the grizzly bear did I dance on a Kodiak run? The song she kept singing made a man's blood run cold. When it's springtime in Alaska, it's 40 below. I was as innocent as I could be. I didn't know Lil was big it's wife to be. He took out his knife and he gave it a throw. When it's springtime in Alaska, I'll be six feet below. When it's springtime in Alaska, he'll be six feet below. Ricochet. Join the conversation.